0: Phil Brookman, and we're glad to have Phil with us. Uh, Phil preaches for the Memorial Road Church of Christ in Edmond, Oklahoma. This church is next door to the Oklahoma Christian University campus. Phil first joined Memorial Road as the youth minister, then transitioned to their pulpit minister about three years ago. Phil is a great communicator, and we're pleased to have him with us tonight. He is married to Mary, and they have two children Anna and Heidi and so Phil would you come and share with us God's word well thank you so much thank you thank you thank you can you hear me it's a green it's green light hello hello here we go well hello testing one two three testing testing can you hear me in the back kinda I'll just I'll just talk kind of loud well, let me I'll just start talking here it's good to be here um, I've been preaching at, at Memorial Road for a few years and I was as our youth minister uh, for for seven years and many times when guests come to worship at Memorial Road and they see me get up they then think okay well when like when's the real preacher getting up? <laughs> Because I look a little young. In fact, the other day a lady came, she was sitting in the back, one of our senior, she was actually a member. She'd been there a while, and I kept getting up, and she kept wondering, why Why is this kid, why is he talking? And so she actually walked down after services and got really close to me and just studied my face like I was an art painting at a museum. She didn't speak. She just had this really thoughtful look on her face, and then she nodded her head, and she said, Oh, okay, you do look a little older up close. That was a comment. To which I said, Okay, well, you do too. No, just kidding. I did not say that. I would have been bad idea. I, I did not say that. So I just I wanted to acknowledge, yes, I do, I do look young. I turned 30 last year, so I felt like that was a big step. Got two kids. Um, I want to start. I have two thank yous for this congregation. One, or one's for the congregation, one is more for you just in general, this, this region. Um, one is I worked with Hudson Hutchinson, and he uh, talks about this church family often. I know the Hutchinsons are, are pillars around here, and I'm praying for Warren, um, as was just mentioned. But I really enjoy working with Hudson. He's a man of God, he's a man of integrity. And he's a man of passion. And a lot of that is because of this church. So you might not know him super well, but this church has molded and shaped him to be a man of God. And I get to enjoy working with him. So thank you for that. And number two, thank you for beating the heat. I've just been waiting. I know. I've been waiting. When when Doug invited me here, that was actually one of the first thoughts that crossed my mind. I was like, yes, I can thank them. Like, I'm just... It was it was such a big deal to me. I'm, I, I am a big Thunder fan, but last year the finals it was just awful. And I and I'm just so glad that you that we. I guess I can't say we, but I do. I, and I'm not bandwagon either. I've loved the Spurs for a long time, back to you know David Robinson, Bruce Bruce Bowen, all the all through the years. I love the Spurs. So thank you uh, for that. Well, I want to start off with a kind of a strange exercise. I want you to think in your mind of your least favorite worship song. So, one of those songs where when somebody leads it, you just think, oh great, no. Just take take it off the screen. You don't like the lyrics. Maybe it's bad theology. Maybe you don't like the tune. Maybe it's too repetitive. Uh, Maybe it's too wordy. Everybody's got a different song. Okay, once you have it in your mind, second thing I want you to do. Is I'd like you to turn to your neighbor and share with that person your least favorite worship song. Just take a moment and whisper that song to them. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing. Um, We did, we did this exercise a few years ago with the elders and staff at the church that I go to, and it got really heated. Like (laughs) worship songs, it's just it's like it's really personal to people, and so we had some people which would raise their hand and say, you know, something like, I don't, I can't stand there is a Bob and Gilead. And then we'd have some of our elders say, what? What is wrong with you? You know, back back and forth. And it just got got heated. So I want to tell you my wife's least favorite worship song. Her least favorite worship song is, there's an all-seeing eye watching you. Okay. Did anybody say that that was yours? Okay, so Mary would have been the only one. That's okay. The reason that Mary just doesn't really like that song is because she has vivid memories growing up as a kid, and it terrified her. I mean, you imagine eight- and nine-year-olds singing that song. It's a, it's a startling song. Like, you're praising Jesus, the cross, yay, gospel. There's an eye. He's watching you. Like, that that freaks the kid out. Like, it really scares them as far as they're thinking about who this God really is. And so Mary really... Much of her teenage life, she had a fear of this big Lord of the Rings eye just watching her all the time. Now, God watching you, for many people, is a dreadful thing. Think about Adam, you know, in the garden of him and Eve after the sin. That's not a great thing when God watches them because they felt ashamed. Think about Jonah, disobeying God, pleased to Tarshish. That's not a great thing when God's watching you Because He disobeys. But The idea that God is watching you Does not necessarily have to be A negative thought There's a lot of people That You want God To be watching you Because one of the greatest realities That all of us face at some time in our lives Is that many of us feel Invisible And we want somebody To notice us. You see, to an extent, we struggle with sinfulness, but we also struggle with insignificance. And maybe you do the same thing every day, and you have your little routine, and every once in a while you have thoughts like, is this it? Like, does anybody even know I'm here? Like, is anybody paying attention to what I'm doing? Does anybody realize how I'm hurting? A lot of us feel invisible, and we want God to do something about it. Well, Psalm 121 is really helpful uh, for any of us who struggle with this feeling of, I I just kind of feel invisible. It's a psalm psalm about a God who has vision. So here's how Psalm 121 starts out. It starts out with a really uh, well-known question where the psalmist says, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. And then in verse 3, he says this. That's the wrong button. There we go. Okay. Verse 3, he says, He, God, watches over you. Verse 4, He watches over Israel. The Lord watches over you. He will watch over your life. And the Lord will watch over your coming and your going. So this the whole psalm reminds us, reminds us of perhaps one of the most available qualities of God, which is also perhaps the most underappreciated quality of God, which would be his vision. God sees people. And the psalmist thought that this particular characteristic was so important enough that he wanted to write about it. Like if you had a piece of paper and you were writing down the the, the top ten greatest attributes about God, my guess is we would write about his strength, we'd write about his power, we would write about his grace, his mercy, his sovereignty. His vision is one of the most underrated characteristics that he has. It's very, very significant that we serve a God who sees people. In fact, you might think about it this way. Going to a different part of the Bible, do you remember the story of Hagar? So you've got this servant who, is, who serves Abraham or Abram and Sarai, and she does her job. She tries to do the right thing. She's a foreigner, and so she, she's just trying to kind of make her living in Abram and Sarai's Household. And if you remember the story, Sarai can't have kids, and so she asks Abram to have a child through Hagar. And so Hagar gets pregnant with what we will know will later be Ishmael. Now, when when Hagar gets pregnant, Sarai gets what? Jealous. And to the point, if you go back and read Genesis 16, Sarai actually starts to abuse Hagar. And finally, it gets bad enough where Sarah just dismisses Hagar and says, "You need to leave our house." House. And so Hagar runs away into the desert. And now you might just try to put yourself in Hagar's position for a moment. This is a pretty bad situation for Hagar. If you were, you know, if you were stranded somewhere, you would call a family member. Uh, you would you would find a shelter somewhere. If you were. Really poor, maybe maybe you would find some type of a homeless shelter. Like you, even if you think you're in a really bad spot here in San Antonio, you you really could find your way out of a mess. Hagar's not in that boat. She's a foreigner. She has no social status. She has no money, and she has been dismissed by her master, and so nobody's nobody wants her, and so she finds herself in the desert, totally forgotten. Totally alone, totally helpless. And that's when God shows up in her life. So here's what happens in Genesis 16. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? It's a really, really interesting conversation here because you've got Sarai totally alone, I mean, Hagar totally alone in the desert. And this angel representing God just comes up and starts having a conversation with her. And I always find this conversation interesting because God totally, you know, skips the small talk. There's no like, hey, who are you? You know, how are you doing? Where did you grow up? It's just like deep philosophical questions. Where did you come from? Where are you going? Like, he gets straight to the point. And so this angel and Hagar start talking here. And then the angel blesses the child... In Hagar's womb. Now the next part is really interesting because Hagar, after this conversation, she speaks back to, this, to the angel, which she actually refers to um, as the Lord. And so Hagar says, uh, you are the God who sees me. Now the reason this is such an important verse in the Bible is because this is the only time in the entire Bible that somebody gives a name to God. Now, God does that a lot to people. He'll give different names for us all day long. He, you know, he calls us uh, sons, daughters, children, heirs, you name it. But there are, there's only one instance in the entire Bible where a person actually looks at God and gives him a unique name. Like, obviously, people call God different names, whether it's Lord or God or the New Testament, Jesus. But this is the only case in which somebody names God specifically. And it's really interesting, the name that she chose to give him. There's all sorts of names, even in the book of Genesis, that Hagar could have chosen. For example, she could have chosen El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. She could have chosen El Elyon, which means God Most High. She could have chosen El Olam, which means everlasting. She could have picked any word to describe this God could have been, God, you're the one who protects me, God, you're the one who loves me, you're the one who delivers me, you're the one who comforts me. But she chooses this word, El Roi, and it means, you are the God who sees me. Fascinating. Only time in the entire Bible, and that's the name that she picks. God, you are the God who sees me. Now, this is important because for those of you who do find yourself in that boat or season of life where you just feel invisible... This name of God, El Roi, is the name of God that you really need to take with you as you go through this season of life. God is a God who actually sees you. I think about just members at the church that I I worship at. And I, th- I, I think about you know we have we have quite a few people in, in the congregation that I that I preach at who don't have jobs right now, and every single day when all, all their friends and all their family get up and go to work, they're getting on the internet. Casting out their resumes, and it's, it's really hopeless. And when they talk to me about it, this, this is the feeling that they kind of put off. They just say, Philip, just, I want someone to notice me. Like, I just want someone to see me. Or I think about some of our members that, that really can't get out much. And that they find themselves in their homes every single day doing the same thing. There's, there's not a whole lot to do. The house is clean. They really cannot, can't get out and do yard work. And so they find themselves just watching TV all day long. And they have all these memories of when they were younger and they could get out and do those things. And those times are gone and so they're stuck at home. And they just want someone to see them. They feel so invisible. So if that's you, if that's your boat today, then this is a psalm for you. Psalm 121 is a psalm for people who feel invisible because it talks about the God who sees you. And that's exactly where Hagar is in the story in Genesis. You see, one of the things that I think about, both with the Hagar story, you are the God who sees me, and this Psalm 121, I watch over you when you sleep, I watch over you all the time, is is the idea that many times in my life, I assume... That God is too busy for me. And I approach God as if I would approach a really high-ranking government official. So you might imagine that you go to the Capitol or some important government office, and you're trying to meet with a senator, or you're trying to meet with some high up, and you see that person in a hallway, and they're talking to somebody else, and they've got their clipboard and their cell phone, and they are acting all important. You were to talk to that person, my guess is you would run up and you'd walk alongside them and, and you would say things like, well, yeah, I, know, I know you're busy and this really isn't that important and I know that you have lots of things on your plate. I really hate to bother you with this because, it's again, it's really not that important. But if you really could, I, I just wanted to say this one thing to you. That's how we would approach somebody who, who's very, very important. Hey, there are a lot of words that describe God in the Bible. Too busy for you is not one of them. And so if you find yourself always approaching God with the sense of, well, God, you know, my problems really aren't as bad as this person's problems. And, you know, God, when I think about all those all this people in Africa that are starving, I, I know my problems really aren't as bad as that. But, but if you can just hear me this one time, that's not great theology. Okay? God does see you, and he actually wants the conversation. And like for those of you that kind of, Throw this quandary in your mind, like, okay, Phil, you're saying that, but how is it possible that God can like be with all the billions of people at once? Like, how can He really, really see and watch all of us at the same time? Like that—that that thought crossed my mind a few hours ago. I was at the airport and I just saw all the, the sea of faces, some of which were Christians and believed in God, many of which did not believe in God. And I just kept thinking, you really see these people? Like how in the world? I get overwhelmed when I'm talking to more than like two people in conversation. And so God claims to be the God of seven billion people. How is that even possible? The reason that it's possible is this. God has infinite attention. God can give you unlimited attention... Because his attention is infinite. We forget that. So it's not like God has to really quickly pay attention to you and then run around the world to Russia to pay attention to some people over there. He's he's outside it all. His, His attention is limitless. And so what that means is you don't have to approach God with this timidity that says, okay, God, if you can just spare me a moment, please maybe you can just talk to me for just a little bit. No. That's why Hebrews 4 tells us you can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Like he cares about you. He sees you. Like think about this, think about this Hagar story again. Don't you think that God had a lot better things to do than to go out and and hang out with Hagar? Like he's got Abraham here. He's got Sarah here. That's like the main dominant People, shouldn't God be spending his time with them? Like, did God really have to go out in the desert to meet Hagar? Think about it this way. Ishmael did not lead to the lineage of Israel. Jesus did not come from Ishmael. In fact, most people think that that the descendants of Ishmael produced Islam. And so God in the heavenly realms is looking down at these people and he's got the main players, Abraham. Sarah. Those are going to be my people. Those are the people I've promised all these blessings to. Those are the people that their descendants is going to be as great as the sands on the seashore. Those are the people I'm going to lead them into the promised land. Those are the people that through their offspring I'm going to enter the world through my son Jesus. And then we've got Hagar, which is none of those things. And yet God still goes to her in the desert. And so what that means is, it doesn't even matter if you care about God anymore. He sees you. He's watching. That, that's the kind of God he is. God always sees you way before you see him. Like that pattern is repeated all throughout scripture. You think about Moses. Who saw who first? Did Moses see God first or did God, or did God see Moses? Think about the burning bush. God sees Moses. And then finally Moses realizes oh wow, I'm standing in the presence of God. You think about the kind of a more obscure story in the New Testament when Jesus calls Nathanael and Nathanael's really skeptical it's in John chapter 1. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And Jesus says, you know what, buddy? I saw you by the big tree before you saw me. And God is always in the habit of seeing people way before they see him. And so what this means is for some of you, even if you're distant from God, like, like some of us are doing things which are actually removing us from the presence of God. Some of us are skeptical some of us are apathetic, some of us are doubting, some of us are self-righteous. But what, what what this really means is that it doesn't matter. God sees you, like in a good way. He's paying attention to you. <coughs> okay, now where do you come into this whole idea of, of the God who sees? Well, I want you to look back at Psalm 121. Now, remember this whole psalm. Remember all these these words that I, I read to you earlier. In fact, I'm going to back up and read them just one more time. Remember, Psalm 121 is all about the idea that God is watching. He's the watchman of the world. He watches over you. He watches over Israel. The Lord watches over you. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going. Now, what's interesting is if you... If you remember back, the very first verse in the psalm says this. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? And here's why this is really important. Vision is a two-way street. What good is it going to do if God in a loving and kind and gracious way is watching your life if you're not watching Him. See, Psalm 121 is actually all a psalm about eye contact. God is watching the psalmist, but what the psalmist does is he lifts his eyes up to the hills to pay attention to God. In other words, God is paying attention to me But the question becomes, am I actually paying attention to him? See, I think that many times in my life, God is paying a lot more attention to Phil Brookman than Phil Brookman is actually paying attention to God. And the moments where I feel most in sync with what God is doing in the world, the moments where I feel the most in step with the spirit of God, like like doing what he wants me to do, is when I make eye contact back with him. Those moments resonate with me because in those moments what I realize is that, wow... God and I can actually team up together to do great things in the world. Like, you think about the power of eye contact. Like, you might think about, think about sports for a moment. If two people on the same team make eye contact, like you think about basketball, when a point guard's at the top of the key, he didn't have to say anything. doesn't have to make any motion. All he has to do is look at a guy, give him a little eye contact, and the guy knows we're going up for an alley-oop. Alley-oops are always predicated by eye contact. You can do a lot with eye contact. You think about social settings. You might be way different than me, but when Mary and I are in a social setting, we always have this moment where like, we look across the room, and if we're ready to go, we just look at each other, and we're like, like you know, we just know. Like, we've, we've been together enough, and it's just like, okay, I've been here long enough, I'm drained, we're done, you know, let's go home. See, it's eye contact. That's all we need. Well, a friend of mine, I guess him, him and his wife didn't have the signals worked out as eloquently or as simply as Mary and I do. Like Mary and I, is, it, it really is just like, I just stare at her and she knows what I mean. It's happened on Sunday. We were at a friend's house and I was just ready to go. I was just kind of done. You know, I, I have like a two-hour window to, to be social. I, I might seem extroverted, but I'm actually introverted and I was just done for. And so I just started staring at Mary she picked up on it and, and, and we left One of my buddies, his sign to his wife is a lot more obvious He will, if his wife's across the room And they're both ready to leave like, a, a gathering He will take his hand and he will reach around And <laughs> Yeah, he does like that I know, totally weird I'm like, what? Just, why can't you just make eye contact? Why did, doesn't that not work for you? Doesn't work for them Works for us The reason I say all this is think about the power of eye contact. When two people, when two humans just make eye contact, something happens. In fact, let's do an experiment. You guys did so good on your least favorite worship songs, we'll do another one. I want you to look at somebody in the room, across the room, somewhere where you're not seated, and try to lock eyes with somebody for about four seconds. Ready, go. Just find somebody. Just find him. And you can break it after four seconds. (laughs) All you need, eye contact. Okay, now. For those of you that did that. I haven't got there yet. For those of you that did that, something actually happens. When one human looks into the eyes... Of another human. There's a connection. This is why, when you were in middle school, you would walk into a room, you had a crush on somebody, you would stare at this person, and then you might not remember this feeling, but I remember this feeling. I'd be staring at this girl I had a crush on, and the moment that she would turn and realize that I was staring at her, you know, I, I would do this. I was so ashamed. It was so embarrassing. The reason that's so embarrassing is because something actually happened. Like eye eye contact is, is really important. There's actually a there's a word for the study of eye contact. It's called oculistics. It's a study of what actually happens when two people make eye contact. And there's been lots of research. They one study they did said uh, showed that babies three months old they had two groups. They had one group of babies three months old that that a lot of people made eye contact with these babies. Second group of babies, no eye contact. And what they found when they, when they did this experiment was that the babies which had eye contact smiled a whole lot more than the babies without eye contact. So something really does happen when two people make eye contact. And the reason I'm saying so much about this is because if if, if significant things happen when two people make eye contact, imagine what would really happen if a person would really have eye contact with God. Like something would happen. And that's what I think is, good. That's what I think is going on in Psalm 121. Because the psalmist is mesmerized with this God who watches him. He's like, I praise you God because you're watching me. You see me all the time. You're watching me. But my part in this is I'm going to lift my eyes to the hills. You see, people that allow God to watch them, but do not return the vision back to God, are very susceptible to blind spots. And what this means is that when I let God look at me, but I don't really care to look back at Him, then I'm going to be very susceptible to to missing things that He sees in my life. So, for example, if somebody has a propensity to be self-righteous and to always deep down inside believe that they're slightly better than other people around them, that person will be completely unaware of this negative character flaw if they never look at God. But someone who has a propensity to self-righteousness that chooses to make eye contact with God is going to be very aware of this deficiency. And the reason why is because the more that you look at God, the more that you start to see the world the way God sees the world. The more eye contact that you can make with the God who created the world, the more that you are going to actually observe the world the way God observes the world. Two weeks ago, I was in Colorado with my family, and I took my girls on their first uh, list. Ever. Cheerleaf up the mountain, it, it's actually a ski resort, and in the summer, obviously, there's snow and you take the ski lift up the mountain and you can ski down. Well, in the summers, you can still take the ski lift up, but instead of skiing down, you can just hike around, or if you have little kids, you just, or some people hike down the mountain, but if you have little kids, you don't want to hike down the mountain, that's a long way, so we would just hike up at the top and then take the lift down. Well, we split sh- we up, my, my parents were with me, and they took my oldest daughter on the lift with them, and I took my youngest daughter, two years old. And I, I love to ski, so I've ridden a lot of ski lifts, and so I have no problem riding a ski lift, like myself. I have no anxiety anymore. But when Heidi got on with me, I was petrified. I was like, no, please don't drop her, please don't drop her. Like, I was so scared because she was with me, and I was like, what if she freaks out and, you know, does something? So I was... Gripping her with all my might. And about halfway up up to the lift, I was like, wow, Phil, you're really, like, this, you need to relax. Like, you're you're gripping her really tightly. So, I took a deep breath, and I was like, I need to enjoy this moment. And so I asked Heidi, I said, Heidi, are you, do you like the lift? And she, I mean, her face just lit up. She's got, like, when she smiles, her cheeks get really big, and her eyes squint really, really, really small. She's got blonde, curly hair, and she's a goofball. And I said do you, are you liking the lift? And she said, yeah. And then I said, Heidi, what can you see? And, you, and just if you haven't been on a ski lift, you're just going up mountain trees everywhere, you know, scenery. And she got the biggest smile. And she said, I can see everything. <laughs> and I think about that. And I think about the song. And Heidi's sitting there with me, her dad, And she makes eye contact with me when I ask her the question. And she says, Dad, I can see everything. And the reason she can see everything is because she's with me and she can see it from my viewpoint on on this chairlift. And so what happens when, when we become the type of people that not only let God see us like Hagar, but we also choose to see him in return. Then we become the people who see the world the way that God sees the world. And if Christians really want to make a difference in the world, everything starts with vision. Actions always come from vision. And if you don't see the world the way that God sees the world, then you're not going to make much of a difference in the world. If you want to make a difference in the world, then it all starts with seeing things differently. Going going back to the story of Hagar, look look at this great line from the mouth of Hagar. Kind of putting the whole idea together. I have now seen the one who sees me. So you notice you got both elements here in the same verse. El rohi, God's the one who sees me, but my part in this is that I actually have to pay attention to God. And so I'm, I might ask you, how well would you evaluate yourself in the realm of paying attention to to God are you good at paying attention to his movements in the world I want to give you two really practical ways that I think we can begin to turn our eyes back on the God whose eyes are always on us and they're very simple they both come from various Psalms in the Psalter which you guys have been studying all summer and I'm not going to go into detail um about, about the Psalms, I, I would if we had more time, but one way to turn your attention back to God is to look at His Word. Like, literally, just read His Word. You think about, you've got, I mean, most of my lesson thus far has been kind of abstract, kind of up in the upper realm, like, well, how do I really see God? How do I pay attention to God? Well, think about it this way. What do you actually see or watch in a given 168-hour week? Like, you've got seven days. What are the majority of things in front of your eyes? We'll go down down to a 24-hour period. If you're normal, then three to four hours of your day, you're going to be in front of a TV screen. So, one experiment would be, if you want to start watching God more, what would it look like to take ten minutes out of those four hours and read His Word? I mean, if you want a really clear, simple way to start turning back to the God who sees you, start by just reading His Word. Secondly, one of the things I love about the Psalms is that the psalmists don't just meditate on the words of God. They also meditate on the works of God. You read the the Psalms and they're, they're mesmerized. They're stunned by creation. like when a psalmist looks at a tree he doesn't just see photo, thin, thin photosynthesis he sees God. like when the psalmists look at the skies, they don't just, just see water and you know cumulus molecules forming these clouds they see God and so if you want to start paying attention to God one of the greatest ways to do that is just to get outside like the world screams the name of God but we're so stuck indoors, Looking at our TV screens, how are we supposed to see God? And so I would advocate to you that if you want to be someone like Hagar, if you want to be someone like this person in Psalm 121, just start looking at God's word and God's works. And again, what I would tell you is that when you do this, when you make eye contact with God, you start to see the world he sees. One of my favorite phrases—I don't even remember who said this to me—but I've always remembered it. This person just said, "When you can, when you can see what God sees, and when you can hear what God hears, then in turn, you'll start to do what God does." And so, again, I say, part of the reason so many of us struggle to actually live out what it means to be Christ to the world is because we're not looking at God. Everything starts vision. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Philip Yancey, and in one of his books that he wrote uh, several years ago, he, he told a story about a prison in South Africa called the Polesmere Prison. And this, this particular type of prison, uh, terrible conditions. The, the, the gang violence in this particular prison was, was absolutely horrific. In 1906, there was a gang formed uh, called the 28s, and this this gang in 1906, the, their origin was these, these 28 guys got together, and they caused this uprising in the prison, murdered quite a few of the wardens, and managed to escape. And so these people became legends, and as the years went by, a gang formed, and they called themselves the 28s. Well, rival gangs also developed, and this is all within a prison system. And so you got the 27s and you got the 26s, and everybody hates everybody in this prison. And in fact, you can't get into the 28s, which is the most prestigious gang. You can't even get into the gang unless you kill somebody in the prison. And so there's a whole point system in which you're awarded a certain amount of points for killing certain people. If you are able to kill an officer or some guard in the prison system, you get a lot more points. So, terrible, terrible prison. They, uh, one particular year, several years ago, they, they had 279 acts of violence in one year. And a lot of those were deaths. And so nearly every day, something is happening in this prison. Well, this woman, she decided to do something about it. Her name was Joanna Thomas. And there's a picture of the prison. This is Joanna Thomas. Well, Joanna Thomas was just an ordinary woman, grew up in a suburb, uh, educated in the U.S., and she moved to Africa. And when she moved there as an adult, one of the things that she wanted to do is that she wanted to find the darkest, worst place in South Africa and see if she could be someone who brought light to a, a terrible place. And so she picked this particular prison. And so what she did was every single day she would go to this prison and she would just visit in their visitation room behind the you know the glass wall and everything, she would just start to befriend some of these prisoners. And she went every single day. She learned their names, she learned their backgrounds, she learned their history, she was positive, she she told them about Jesus. that's all she did. Nothing, nothing too crazy. She built relationships over the course of one year. She never missed a day. She went on Easter, she went on Christmas, she went on Thanksgiving. The next year, the acts of violence went from 279 all the way down to 2. And so this woman in 1 year completely transformed one of the most horrific prisons in the world. And so Philip Yancey caught wind of this, and he's written lots of books. And he loves to travel and interview people and try to figure out how, how did you do what you did. And so he went and found Joanna and interviewed her for his book, and he asked her this question, how did, how did that happen? Like, I know you're going to say you just built relationships, but really, 279 acts of violence to two, like, what did you do? And I love her response. So profound. Here's what she said. God was already there. I just had to make him visible. Those are really deep words. And the author of Psalm 121 knows exactly what she's talking about. God's already doing stuff. But it's up to you and me to make him visible. And all that really means is just paying attention to what he's already doing. My guess is that in your life, God is doing things but he's probably doing some things that maybe you aren't aware of. Like One way you can think about this, this is kind of one closing metaphor I'll leave you, leave you with is that, imagine that you're going in for an eye exam like if you going in for a normal eye exam you go in and they have you look at a chart and big letters are really easy to read and as letters get smaller and smaller and smaller you have to squint and they're really hard to see and I don't know if or how many of you ever, have ever experienced this phenomenon when you're looking at something and it's so fuzzy and you can't read it, and then the eye doctor gives you a new pair of glasses and you put it on and you say, "Oh, well, that makes total sense. I, I know exactly what image I'm looking at." Well, when it comes to your perception of God, some of us were able to see the really big stuff, like the big letters, and so we might say, "Oh, we might say, Oh, yeah, well, I, you know, I see God. I, you know, He.'" He made the world and, you know, he gave me a good family growing up. Like we see something bigger. You know, he gave us Jesus. Kind of the stereotypical answers. I think we can train ourselves by by kind of giving us different sets of spiritual glasses so that we are able to discern even the more subtle movements of God, as the psalmist is talking about in 121. He's watching you all the time. And so our job is to lift our eyes to the hills and, and watch Him and see Him. And to do that, it might take a different pair of glasses, of spiritual glasses, that you might be used to, to wearing. God speaks through His Word. God speaks through His works. God speaks through um, circumstances. I, I have had times in my life where I was in the presence of somebody else and they said something that I realized that's that's what God wanted me to hear. I think when you think about a... Joshua in this regard, when when God is, God keeps saying, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous in Joshua chapter 1. Well, if you read that chapter closely, the first few times God says, be strong and courageous. The last time it's people. They come up and say, hey, be strong, be strong and courageous. So what that means is it is very possible that God wants to get through to us through the words of somebody else. So God can speak to you through somebody else. My favorite way to connect with God is through silence. I spend a, a bunch of time alone. I spend time just in silence, just sitting there, not necessarily trying to hear anything amazing, but just sitting in solitude and silence, just like Jesus did all the time, just going by himself. And so there's no, like, one tiny way through which you can see God. He's everywhere. And so my challenge for you would be, can you do something this week to increase your vision of the God who always sees you? Let's pray and then we'll be done. Father, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for Psalms like 121, which teach us that you see us. And Father, I'm so thankful for that promise, because if I'm honest, there are days when I feel invisible, and I'm longing for somebody, some being to notice me, and I'm thankful that you, my Father, see me. You made me, you know me, and you've got a plan for my life. Father, I pray that, that us, we as the body of Christ, might be a type of people that pays attention to you. And I, pay, I pray that somewhere in the midst of this eye contact, as you look at us and as we look at you, that something might happen in our spirit and in your spirit which might resonate with us as we engage with the world that you love. So, Father, teach us to see what you see and to hear what you hear, so in turn we can do what you do. May we be your arms and we may, be, may we be your hands and your feet to the broken world in which we live. It's through the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you.